This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings listeners, it's time for the July episode of Radio Astronomy. I'm news editor Ezzy Pearson and I'm joined on the podcast today by production editor Neil McKibb. Hello. Coming up later, we'll be telling you how to observe the planet Saturn this month. But for now, we're going to look a little bit closer to home. Yeah, um, July marks the 50th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 15, the fourth mission to land on the moon, which took off on 26th of July 1971 and returned 12 days later on the 7th of August. Against the backdrop of NASA budget cuts, the main aim of the mission was to conduct extensive scientific experiments, which we'll talk about in more detail a bit later. But notably, this was also the first Apollo mission to test out the lunar roving vehicle, or the moon buggy, for the first time. NASA was by now contending with unmanned Soviet space probes, and there was a genuine query about whether there was any point sending humans to the moon if robots could do the job instead. And this was the political backdrop that existed when Apollo 15's crew of three took off, consisting of Commander Dave Scott, Lunar Module Pilot Jim Irwin, and Command Module Pilot Alfred Warden. The Apollo 15 mission was the first of NASA's J-Class missions, which meant it was packed with scientific equipment, including a suite of images to survey the moon from orbit. This extra payload weighed 1,800 kilograms. Even the crew's space suits had been specially redesigned with extra joints in them to allow the astronauts to sit in the moon buggy and carry out extensive moonwalks. Despite the Falcon touching down south of where they were meant to be, and with 10 degrees tilt, the crew were undeterred and they were able to cover a distance of almost 28 kilometres in the moon buggy and conducted three EVAs during their long weekend on the moon. Scott also performed what's known as a stand-up EVA after they'd arrived by opening the hatch and taking a look around for over half an hour. They'd settled on the area around Hadley Rill, a 400-metre-deep valley carved out by an ancient magma stream running along the foothills of the lunar Apennine Mountains. On the final EVA, the crew put up a monument to recently fallen astronauts, and when they launched, they returned home with 76.6 kilograms of samples taken from the surface, including the famous Genesis rock. As Apollo 15 left the moon, TV audiences on Earth were treated to a live view of the module leaving the moon via the lunar roving vehicles tv camera the mission had been a success but unfortunately it was soon overshadowed by scandal when it emerged that the crew had secretly smuggled special kinds of stamps on board which were going to be sold 
Despite this controversy, the main legacy of the mission is the wealth of scientific insight it produced, which is something that Ezzy is going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, as as we said at the beginning, this was the first of what's called the J-class missions. And this was originally supposed to just be another kind of much shorter mission onto the surface, uh, originally Apollo 15. But with the budget cuts that were happening, um, as people began to lose interest with the moon missions, the, they they promoted Apollo 15 to be, be this J-class mission because they they knew they only had three more missions left. That was it. And then Apollo would be done. Um, and so that's, they really wanted to get as much scientific output as they could. Um, and that's why they had three EVAs. Um, they were on the surface for four days in total. Um, the reason why they also had the stand-up EVA at the beginning was because when Apollo 15 first landed, because they were going to be on the surface for such a long time, they wanted their astronauts to be on the same circadian rhythm that they had back on Earth. You know, they didn't want to give people moon lag. Um, So that meant when they landed, it was bedtime and they had to go to sleep. Um, But can you imagine landing on the moon? It's right out there and you're told, no, you're not allowed to go outside and have a look. You have to go to bed. So they put in this short, uh, like hour long EVA, which just allowed Scott to to stand up. And he he's excused himself as saying that he was uh, doing a geologist survey of the surrounding area um, because they had had an awful lot of scientific training beforehand. Um, previous missions, there had been some geologic training for the astronauts, but it had been a bit slapdash. And quite often the astronauts hadn't really taken it seriously. Whereas before this one, they had, you know, one, two, sometimes three training missions every month where they went on geology field trips and they learned how to identify interesting rocks and and how to, most importantly, catalogue everything properly. That was something that had been really missing from the previous missions was that really detailed cataloguing. Um, And when it comes to something like geology, if you just pick up a random rock and hand it to someone, like they can tell you about that rock, but they can't tell you anything about whether it's the the, the climate that it came from. You know, was it transported there from somewhere else? Was it a representative of what was in the area? Um, and so being able to do that kind of cataloging really, really increased the, the usefulness that they got out of the Apollo 15 samples. Um, and... During these these three different EVAs, they explored the area that they landed in. They they landed near an area called Hadley Rill. Um, a rill is like a big canyon um, on on the surface of the moon. Um, you can sometimes see them through through telescopes uh, as these kind of dark lines running across the moon. So they are quite big and quite obvious. Um, it turned out actually it wasn't like the Grand Canyon, which suddenly like has a very sharp edge and dips off. It's a sort of more a, a gentle valley, but a very big, very, very big gentle valley, you know, like several kilometres across. Um, and they were also next to, so this rill was also next to a bunch of mountains called the Apennine Mountains, which were on the rim of the Imbrium Basin. Um, so there was a lot, you know, geologically going on here. There's lots of different types of, of, of things to explore. But what the science team were really, really hoping for was something called, and I hope I pronounced this right, 
an anorthosite rock. And basically that means a very primordial piece of rock the early, from the earliest eras of the moon. So kind of piece of the primordial crust. And that was like number one on their bucket list of what they wanted to get. Um, and so during the mission, they the, the two astronauts on the landing, Scott and Irwin, um, drove around in their buggy and really explored this area. Uh, previously, astronauts had found that walking any kind of distance on the moon, even a kilometre, was incredibly tiring. You know, you're constantly fighting against the, the pressurised suits. Um, and even though they did, you know, make these suits easier to wear and more manageable, they were still very difficult to move about in. Um, so if you're sitting on a rover, much easier. Also much easier to deal with the slopes that you find if you're like working on mountains and things. Um, and in fact, there's there's one point on the second EVA where Scott took a look around and said, man, I'm really glad we didn't have to walk up here <laughs> because it was such a sleep slope to get up there. Um, but yes, so they, they found various interesting things. Uh, they took lots and lots of samples, but there's, there's three, which I think were, were particularly interesting. One was they spotted something very strange whilst they were doing their, their second EVA. They saw a patch of green. Green is not a color that you come across very often on the moon. There's lots of browns and tans and grays, um, and blacks and whites, but not much green. So this really stuck up to them. Um, and it turned out these were actually called uh, green pyroclastic glass beads. And what that pyroclastic means is that means they were produced during a very violent volcanic event in the moon's past and come from really deep down inside of the mantle of the moon. So they're a way of, of getting a sample from a part of the moon that you normally have absolutely no access to because you know you can't drill down tens of kilometers into the surface of the moon you know we struggle to do that on earth let alone you know somewhere like the moon um and in fact they, they picked up quite a few of these throughout the mission but there's one very famous one come that comes from an area called seat belt rock um and it's called that because apparently commander david scott used the excuse of uh he had to refasten his seat belt um, to be able to stop to pick up these green glass beads uh, because he knew NASA were very, very strict about their time schedule and their time frame and they wouldn't have been allowed to stop otherwise. Um, so he, he used this excuse of he was just fastening a seatbelt to go and pick them up, which I think is quite nice. Um, there's another famous rock. It's perhaps the most famous sample from the entire Apollo mission. Um, it became known as the Genesis rock. And it was this an orthosite that they were looking for, that they dating from the very early areas of the moon. It wasn't quite from the primordial crust, unfortunately. It was from a few hundred million years after the moon had formed. But it was still a very early rock that they managed to, to learn. And, you know, people are still studying it today to learn about what kind of moon was like and how it formed all of those years ago. Um, and then finally, there was another one which they took, and this was a very hard one sample. Um, and that was something called a core sample. So you might have heard of core samples before. Um, they take them quite often in the Antarctic and the Arctic. They take core samples of the ice uh, where you drill down, basically, and you just get a really long um, core. <laughs> 
sort of a, a big tube of, of rock or ice or sand or whatever it is that you happen to be looking at. And you can look back through this and see all of the different layers in the rock. And each of these layers is left down at a different time. So by looking back down through this core, you can tell a lot about the moon's lunar history. And that's what this did. However, it was incredibly difficult for them to get, and they almost didn't make it back to Earth with this. Because um, unfortunately, it turned out that the two astronauts were having a lot of trouble with their gloves. They purposefully designed the gloves to have shorter fingers so that they could have a bit more dexterity and work out what they were doing. Unfortunately, this meant that their fingers kept bashing against the end of their gloves. Um, and apparently both Scott and Irwin, by the time, like even after the first EVA, they said they felt like somebody had taken a hammer to their fingers. And by the end of the second one, Scott's fingers were beginning to turn black because of this constantly mm -hmm. rubbing up against. Yeah, <laughs> they had to, like they cut their nails down to the quick to try and stop it from getting any worse, but it was very unpleasant. And apparently trying to use the drill that they needed to get this core sample was, was one of the most painful things. Um, they did manage to get it in. They then almost didn't have enough time to get the drill back out again. It was supposed to come out at the end of EVA 2, um, but the drill got stuck in the ground. So they just left it there overnight and then got it in the next morning. Um, and apparently it took them, you know, almost half an hour of, of jostling to get this thing back up out of the ground. And, you know, considering NASA hadn't let Scott have five minutes to stop and pick up a, the, the, the glass beads, you can imagine what they were like about taking half an hour over this core sample. They then had to, you know, they were supposed to chop it up into segments so they could bring it back nicely. Um, and they didn't really do that. They just kind of ended up just chocking it into the lunar module. And it's like, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> But that did give uh, scientists back on Earth a look at the last 500 years of, of lunar history and what was going on in the surface in that time. Um, so it was hugely important and, and it was very good that they did manage to get that. But lunar exploration isn't all about, you know, contending with drills and, and having this sort of things. There was also a, a suite of experiments that they had on the surface. And in fact, every Apollo mission had this. It was called the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package. And this was basically just like a, 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 a package <laughs> of various instruments that they could just plonk on the surface, do a little bit of setup, and it was good to go, basically. Um, and this was a lot of things like uh, seismic experiments to see if there were any moonquakes that were, were going on. And there are moonquakes. Um, they're caused by the, the moon expanding and cooling as opposed to there being any kind of geological activity like there is here on Earth, um, any tectonic activity like there is on Earth. Uh, they also had a heat flow experiment, which measured heat coming out of the moon. Um, and again, that showed that the moon is not tectonically active. It's not volcanically active anymore. It's a, it's a dead world, which we, we pretty much knew at the time, but it just confirmed it. Um, there was also various other experiments that measured things like the solar wind, because here on Earth, we can't look at the solar wind because it, our magnetic field deflects it. Um, there isn't any magnetic field on the moon, so they could detect it straight up there. Um, and 
Also something called a, a laser ranging rinder, a laser ranging retro reflector, which is very <laughs> hard to say. And there's loads of these on the moon now. Basically what it is, it's like a big reflector um, that you can fire a laser at that will then bounce straight back to your detector here on Earth. And you can use it to measure the distance to the moon. Um, and pretty much every Apollo mission, I think, had one of these. Um, the lunar rovers from the Soviets, uh, the Lunar Cod 1 and 2, had these on. I think even the Chinese rovers that are currently up there now, or the landers at least, um, have these retroreflectors on. Um, and and if you have the equipment, like anybody can just bounce a laser off it, but it does require some fairly specialist equipment to be able to do that. Um, so there was a lot going on on the surface. They were very, very busy. Um, but of course, James Irwin and David Scott weren't the only people on the Apollo mission. There was also Alfred Warden, who was the command module pilot. So he was by himself out in space, orbiting around the moon in the Endeavour command module. Um, and three days is a long time to be in space by yourself. So NASA made sure that he was kept very, very busy, um, as well as maintaining the, the spacecraft to make sure that everything was on track for when he needed to, to pick up his colleagues. He was also taking lots and lots of pictures of the surface of the moon. Um, and this, these are some incredible pictures. I, I really do strongly suggest you, you look up the kind of pictures that were taken during these missions. Um, most of these were kind of like in big strips because obviously he was orbiting around the moon. So he would basically point his camera out of the window and take these lots and lots of pictures that they would then stitch back together on Earth to create these massively long strips of photography that went right around the, the surface of the moon. Um, he ended up with various different things, somewhere between 10% uh, to 20%, depending on what he was phot photographing from the surface of the moon through these images. And those were designed to basically give a kind of general overview of what the moon looked like, because a landing mission tells you a lot, but it only tells you about a very small area. Meanwhile, he was also doing work with a lot of, of spectrometers. So a spectrometer is basically uh, an instrument that can tell you what something you're looking at is made of, what its composition. And so that's what he was doing. Um, various different instruments detected various different things. Um, and from this, we found out that the Lunar Mare had low levels of aluminium, but were high in magnesium. Meanwhile, the Lunar Highlands were the opposite. They were very high in magnesium, uh, high in aluminium, but low in magnesium. Um, and that told us a lot, can tell geologists a lot about the way that they formed and so on. Um, and also looked at various different other elements that you could find, you know, the distribution of iron, all of these kinds of things. Um, and so from this, it was, it was getting an up close view of the moon and creating these, these big maps. Because whilst there had been orbiters that had been gone in around the moon and, and taken pictures, um, these quite low quality cameras because they had to uh, technology at the time they had to beam back to earth. Um, whereas this one, they could take it with, you know, high quality cameras at the time um, and then develop them back in the lab on earth without having to worry about transmitting everything back to earth. Um, 
And there were also some of these experiments. A lot of these experiments he did himself or he operated from inside. But there was a couple that were just bolted onto the side of the spacecraft and they did their thing. And he, when, after Scott and Erwin had returned to Endeavour and they were on their way back to Earth, he, he just had to, to nip outside to, to go and grab them. So during Apollo 15, he performed the first ever deep space spacewalk. So just millions of kilometers from home, he went outside and, and grabbed these things and came back in again, which I think, you know, a spacewalk must be a bit mind-boggling at the best of times, but most spacewalks, they at least, you know, you like you can see Earth below. It must have been a very unique experience, I think, being that person. Because not only was he doing, you know, this spacewalk in the middle of nowhere by himself, he also spent several minutes every time he orbited the moon when he was on the far side and he was locked away that the moon was blocking radio signals so he's completely alone um and he also said that sometimes he would look out the window when the sun was hidden and he could see more stars than he thought were possible and he just had this incredible view out of to the universe so the people who got left behind on the command modules often get overlooked um but i think they, they were also part of the Apollo missions, and I think it, it must have been an incredible experience, a different experience from walking on the moon, but a incredible experience nonetheless. So out of interest, was that um, planned before him having to do the deep spacewalk and get those photographic things? Yes. Yeah. So it was, it was basically, it was just some of the instruments that it was just easier to, rather than come up with some way that you could get them from inside and bring them in it was much easier for him to go outside and and pick them up whilst they were in space. Uh, they couldn't just leave it bolted onto the outside because um, when they came back through the Earth's atmosphere, obviously things on the outside get very hot. Um, that might affect any results on the container. Um, the container might have just come off. It could affect the aerodynamics. So it's much easier to just like leave it there and then we'll get it before we come home. You know, by this point, the the NASA had done lots and lots of spacewalks. Um, it's just most of them were a bit, you know, closer to home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. So Apollo 15, it was a, an interesting mission. It was the first big scientific one. Um, the main sort of thing that it proved as well was the fact that astronauts could do these big long-haul missions. And it was... It was hard, you know, these these people, both the two on the, the ground and, and warden up on the, the command module, it was an ordeal for them. But they managed it and they proved that this, this rover that they'd created could quite happily traverse long, wide areas of the moon. Um, and they knew they only had two more Apollo missions coming up and it really proved that they could push what this program had been capable of. Um, and we will return to find out what happened on those two missions in a future podcast. But if you want to find out more about Apollo 15, be sure to pick up the July issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we have all the details of the mission. Or look at our website, www.skynightmagazine.com. We have details of all the Apollo missions. And now it's time for this month's Stargazing Tip. 
Jupiter is approaching opposition when Earth lies directly between it and the Sun. And during July, it will be at its highest position in the night sky in the early hours on the 31st of July, around 2.40 a.m. Here, it will reach an altitude of 24 degrees above the horizon in the south in the constellation of Aquarius. The altitude is higher than anything the planet achieved in 2020, and as a result, it will be clearer to see as the view will be more stable than it was at a lower altitude where the atmosphere is thicker. For the best view, have a look for a small telescope, 75mm or larger. On the 26th of July, it will be very close to a waning gibbous moon at 3am, at a distance of 5 degrees, which is equivalent to three fingers held up at arm's length, when both objects are due south. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about the Apollo 15 mission in the July issue of BBC Sky Night magazine, where we also take a peek at black holes that appear to have no event horizon, look at a Milky Way mega mosaic that took 12 years to create, and tell you everything you need to know about imaging nebulae and galaxies. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. So from all of us here at BBC Skylight Magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Collie. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. <laughs>